is just a quick message to let you know that Elucidations now has a blog. Check it out at Lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu slash blogs slash elucidations. Check it out. Let us know what you think. Welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman. And I'm Jamie Edwards. With us today is Christopher Frey, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at the University of Chicago, and he's here to talk to us about Aristotle on living organisms and their parts. Christopher Frey, welcome. Thank you for having me. So maybe we could begin with a little bit of stage setting. Central to Aristotle's notion of what a living thing is is the idea of teleology, the idea of things being related in sort of means and relationships or of things having a purpose. So maybe we could just sort of say a bit about that. You know, what do we mean by teleology? Yeah, I mean, whenever one wants to understand why something changes in one way rather than another or why it comes to be with some characteristic rather than another, it's usually quite useful and one often has to invoke the notion of an end or a goal in the Ursatilian lingo. It's that for the sake of which something happens or that for the sake of which something comes to be with one characteristic rather than another. And these sort of explanations, teleological explanations, explanations that appeal to an end or a goal are invoked throughout Aristotle's attempts to understand natural things. So, for example, if you take an acorn, to completely understand an acorn, one has to appeal to the ultimate form that it will eventually realize if it's placed in the right environment and nothing external hinders it, it's going to grow and eventually take on the form of a mature oak tree and exercise all the capacities that one needs to exercise in order to live the sort of life typical of an oak tree. And these sort of explanations, citing a gold, you know, it's not only limited to these large-scale processes, but in citing a goal, one doesn't just talk in a large-scale way about these developments from initial stages to mature stages, but it's also useful in explaining why some part comes to be with the function that it has, right? So in order for a human being to come to be in its mature state and live the sort of life typical of human beings, well, you're going to need things like hearts. A heart has to come to be and perform its particular function, namely pumping blood. It pumps blood because it needs to in order for the human being to come to be and exemplify its form in its fullest sense. So throughout one's attempts to explain natural beings and what they do, one has to see them as being directed towards a goal or some end. I mean, normally when we talk about goals, we talk about the goals that like a person would have, you know, uh, as in, I want to be a really good ice skater or something. So this is, I guess, a goal in somewhat of a different sense. This is more like, you know, in order to understand what it is to be an acorn, you have to understand that the purpose of an acorn is to sprout into this mature tree and to live the life of a tree. We're really talking about a goal in, in that sense, rather than it's my goal to be a great ice skater someday sense. Yes. Um, of course, teleological explanations are quite common when discussing action, right, or desires, say, what one is after, what one is attempting to do. 
this isn't the same sort of goal or end that one is invoking when one's talking about natural happenings, what's generally called natural teleology. In these cases, one doesn't want to think of the acorn as having a purpose in the sense that an individual human being has a purpose when he acts. He's trying to consciously strive to achieve some end. It's not as if we're attributing small minds that are desiring things or trying to strive for things. So it might be at least misleading to think of acorns as having a purpose in this way. One just has to recognize in order to understand what an acorn is doing, one has to recognize that if nothing external is preventing it from acting in the way it does, this is ultimately what is going to happen, what's going to occur. It's going to develop into a mature exemplar of the particular form it has. So a crucial part of Aristotle's story is his account of form and matter. When we moderns think of matter, we're likely to think of the smallest substance that something is made of, atoms or quarks or strings. Matter is going to be what all things consist of. Aristotle has a different account of matter and an account of form as well. Could you say something about this? So most of Aristotle's uh, initial examples of something being a composite of matter and form, most of these examples are artifacts. So for example, in your typical intro to ancient philosophy course, one will usually describe a statue made out of clay. So at one point in time, there's a lump of clay without any distinctive form. Through the activity of some artisan, this lump of clay is molded into something with a distinctive shape, that of a human being, say, it's a statue. And if he's unsatisfied with this, he can later crush the statue and what one has again is another lump of clay. So one thinks of the matter as that which persists through the coming to be of a statue and remains after the statue ceases to be. And this helps understand what's going on with the statue at a time, forgetting it's coming to be or it's passing away. Just looking at the statue, one can see it as consisting of two different elements, right? There's the matter, the bronze, and this bronze takes on a particular shape or form, that of the statue. Another example Aristotle gives is a house, right? At one moment in time, you have lots of various bricks and boards and surely other things. At a later time, you have a house where these bricks and boards are organized in a certain way in order to exemplify the form of a house and provide shelter. And then at a later time, after an earthquake hits, you'll again have the same bricks and boards that you had before the construction of the house occurred. And so when you look at the house just standing there before you, you can look and you can see lots of bricks and boards. And these bricks and boards are going to have the form of a house. It's going to be organized in a particular way. So these are at least two of the sorts of examples that Aristotle will give when trying to describe the distinction between the matter and form in a particular object in front of you. So it's not important for Aristotle that the matter be that which is finally analyzed into the smallest feature. In the house example, the brick itself has matter, the clay that it's made of, and from another perspective, the brick itself is the matter of the house. Is that right? It's actually somewhat difficult to, in the case of bricks, to specify what the matter and form are. 
So matter is not what one's most thorough and complete physical theory says there has to be, right? Something like atoms or the other examples you gave if you want to go further down than that. One, uh, matter is always given with respect to a form. So if you have a house, a house has a particular matter, and it's most appropriate to think of it in terms of, usually in this case, he cites the bricks and boards as being the matter of the house. These bricks and boards might themselves have a form, and with respect to this form, there would be its own matter. But to talk about matter isn't to pick out a domain of objects, right? For Aristotle would be earth, air, water, and fire. That may ultimately be what everything is made up of, perhaps, but one can, with respect to any object, make a distinction between its matter and its form. And when one talks about the matter, one isn't always talking about earth, air, water, and fire. So Aristotle has this interesting argument about severed hands, which maybe we can talk about a bit. His claim can sound somewhat surprising, I think, to contemporary ears. And the claim is something like, if you chop a person's hand off, the severed hand is really not a hand in the same sense as the hand that was attached to the person was. It's, you know, a hand in a totally different sense of the term. Now, what exactly is Aristotle's point there? Well, this claim, what's been come to be known as the homonymy principle, some things are homonymous if they share a name but differ in their account or what they are. So, for example, a bank is a financial institution and a bank is the side of a river bank. These are homonymous uses of bank, um, even though the same word is used. What they're talking about is completely different. In this case, something similar happens when a hand is severed from a living organism. Um, you can use the word hand perfectly legitimately, but what you're picking out isn't the same thing as what was present and called a hand when attached to the living organism. And it's not just about severing, right? When, when, when a living organism dies, say, is lying before you on the autopsy table, and one says, let's examine the right hand. Again, this is a perfectly legitimate use of the word hand, but one has to recognize that what one is picking out is a hand in name only. It's a very different sort of thing than the hand that I'm opening and closing now. This homonymy claim is actually a symptom of an underlying difficulty with thinking of living organisms in terms of matter having a form. When I introduced the matter-form distinction, as Aristotle does, I used artifacts as an example. And with artifacts, the matter of an artifact is something that you could point to and specify in a way that is independent of the form the matter happens to take at any given time. So, for example, it's the very same bronze that is present before it becomes a statue, is present in there, you could point it out, it's there in the statue, and it's the same bronze that is present after the statue ceases to be, after its destruction. So the bronze has the capacity to take on the form of the statue, and its identity bears no necessary relationship to that form. And this is equally true of houses. You have bricks and boards that you can identify completely before the house comes to be. Once the house is there, it's the very same bricks and boards that you can look at and point to, and those bricks and boards are present afterwards. It's difficult to see anything playing this role in the case of living organisms. Um, so for living organism, the form is its soul. Um, to have a soul is to be capable of manifesting one of the various ways of living that there are. So, for example, for a plant 
to have a soul is for it to be capable of feeding itself, maintaining itself nutritively, growing in an appropriate way, hopefully ultimately reproducing itself if everything goes well. For animals, living also consists in being able to move oneself about and to perceive, and ultimately in us, living involves thinking as well. And so to have a soul, to have, say, the form of a man, involves being able to do all of these things. That's what it is to be alive. But if you look at what the various candidates are for the matter of a living organism, the things Aristotle cites as the matter of, say, a man, you would point to things like hands and arms and hearts and so on, right? It, that's, if you were looking at me right now, you could look at my body and say, these are the things present, these are the things that are alive or are ensouled. Just to clarify about uh, the use of the term soul, when we talk about the soul of a creature in these contexts, we're talking about whatever it is that makes the living thing different from the dead thing, not soul as in the sort of thing that can go to heaven or go to hell and, you know, with all these religious connotations. So in one sense, to talk about the soul for Aristotle is just to talk about the principle in virtue of which something is alive. And one could give various accounts of what a soul is, and Aristotle goes to great lengths to try and show why many of these accounts of what the soul is are wrong, and one of them would be something like the account you just gave, the souls being somehow independent of the body and something that could persist independently of informing or ensouling some matter. This is ultimately not the view of the soul that Aristotle puts forward himself. He says in his most general definition in the De Anima that the soul is the form of a natural body that has life potentially, and he goes on to elucidate this by saying that the soul is the form in the sense of a first actuality. To have a first actuality is just to be capable of performing some sort of activity. So, for example, to be a house builder in first actuality is to be capable of building a house, though one is not actually building a house. So a house builder sitting on his couch possesses this capacity in first actuality. When he gets up and starts hammering away, he possesses this capacity in second actuality. He's a house builder in second actuality. And to have a soul is just to be capable of doing all the sorts of activities involved in one's living, the life one lives, in first actuality. So, for example, when one's asleep, one is still alive because one is capable of opening one's eyes and seeing things, of moving oneself about, going around and feeding, of thinking, and so on. Nothing that I've said now implies that the soul is somehow the sort of thing that is separable from a living organism's body that could persist independently of this body and so on. Yeah, so maybe to sum up a bit, we defined matter in relation to changes. So something changes from a lump of clay into a statue, and the thing that persists through the change, the thing that stays the same is the matter. It's, in this case, the clay. Because in both cases, you can identify, here's some clay in the lump, and then when you look at the statue, oh, here, here's the same clay that was in the lump before. So there's something that persists through the change. But in the case of changes to do with living things, it doesn't seem to work exactly that way. Uh, it, it seems like when I cut a person's hand off, we can't say that there's the same thing that was there when the hand was attached is still there after it's been severed. Something like that. Is that sort of where we are? Yeah, well, I was going to say that in trying to specify what the matter of a living organism is, if you point and say, well, it's your hand, well, 
what is it to be a hand? To be a hand is to be capable of doing certain things, right? For all of my organs and parts, to be an organ or a part is to be capable of performing some sort of function. And these functions are the very functions that something has if one has a soul. So there isn't anything you could point to and identify within a living organism whose identity is independent of the soul of the organism of which these things are parts. So what is it to be a heart? To be a heart is to pump blood. And the reason why this heart is what it is, why it comes to be with the function it has, is because it has to come to be with this function as part of the coming to be of the organism of which it's a part. And so if it no longer can perform this function, it isn't really what it is within the living organism. It isn't a hand. And this is why it would be a hand name only. So there's something very intuitive about Aristotle's description of homonymy. It does seem that a severed hand is something different than a hand that's attached to a body and in use. And it does seem that a corpse is something that's different than a living body. Yet it seems that Aristotle is committed to something peculiar, which is saying there is nothing that persists through the change from hand to severed hand or living body to corpse. Is that right? I think you're right to find it confusing. Now, many people have the same reaction. This reaction is in part motivated just by what Aristotle himself says about matter and form in the cases of artifacts. So, for example, take a house. There's a sense in which something is only a door when it's present in a well-functioning house, you know, a house that's standing and people are living in. And it has a certain function, and you couldn't understand this function independently of the form of the house of which the door is a part. But surely they'll say there's something that persists through this change. Perhaps we don't want to describe it as a door, but at least there's some rectangular prism of made of wood. <laughs> and, um, and so there's some way of describing the matter of a house that allows one to see something persisting as the sort of thing it is in a way that's independent of the form of the house. Right? So in one sense, you could say the door in the collapsed house is a door in name only because it's no longer performing its function, but there's some other matter, some bit of wood in a particular shape that's present both before and after. So why not say something similar about human beings? Sure, there's a hand before, a perfectly well-functioning hand, and to really understand what this hand is and its function, one can't prescind from the form of the organism of which, to which the hand belongs. So the hand in a corpse would not be a hand in this sense. But why not say that, you know, there are certain tissues that one could describe in some sense independently of this biological function, just in terms of some sort of physical or tangible characteristics, and that this body persists as the same sort of thing, and that this sort of thing is present within the living organism and is present in the same manner of being within the corpse. And this is trying to supply this second notion of matter, the second sort of body which might be present inside a living organism and also present inside a corpse. It's an interpretation many people want to provide on Aristotle's behalf. So providing this sort of explanation is not just useful exegetically to try and make Aristotle consistent, but there's a second motivation, namely that people want Aristotle to be in better alignment with what we now think of as the relationship between 
the biological functions of a living organism and its matter. So many would think it would be absurd to think that somehow there isn't some level of analysis, some matter that's present both before a living organism comes to be, that's present in that organism in the same way it's present before, and is present once the living organism dies, again, in the same manner. So for example, there's an atom of carbon within the sandwich I'm about to eat. Once I eat it, that same atom is somewhere present in my body, and of course becomes incorporated into a tissue and might be performing some larger role, some biological role, which you might only be able to describe this role by appealing to the sort of form of the organism to which it belongs. But when I die, that same carbon atom is present in the corpse, free to move about and perhaps become incorporated into another organism, hopefully not immediately. So many on behalf of Aristotle think that one has to provide some account of matter that's independent of form, that one can see as persisting, as the sort of thing it is, independently of attributing any sort of function, and independently of any appeal to that individual's form. So it seems like we have kind of two ways of hearing this, what we're calling the homonymy principle. We have sort of a hard-nosed way of hearing it and kind of a wimpy way of hearing it. And the wimpy way would be something like, okay, I can see that when you chop somebody's hand off, it's not serving the purpose of a hand anymore. It can't because it's not part of a living thing anymore. But still, there's some thing that persists through that change, namely a bunch of bone tissue and a bunch of muscle tissue and and so on and so forth. So that would be the wimpy understanding of the homonymy principle. And then we can contrast that with the hard-nosed understanding of the homonymy principle on which we want to say, look, there is no thing that persists through the severing that deserves the name matter, that serves anything like the purpose that you know matter is supposed to serve in the way we explain and understand things. Now, it seems that you want to advocate what I'm calling the more hard-nosed reading of the homonymy principle. Why do you think it's important that the principle be understood in that way rather than in the wimpier way? So I probably wouldn't call it the wimpy way, but the initially most plausible way. It has quite a bit going for it. So you think of, say, just one of my tissues, a certain tract of bone, and you say, well, it has a certain material properties, right? For Aristotle, these are quite minimal, right? It has a certain temperature, a certain level of heat or coldness, a certain level of moisture, wetness or dryness, and it also has a certain location to which it will naturally tend. If it's very earthen, it will go down, and if it's kind of fiery, it will naturally move upwards. And you could say, well, look, if I just take this tissue and completely prescind from the role it plays in the sort of larger biological functioning of the organism, well, then it's no different from an inanimate body with the exact same physical characteristics. This is what you'd have to say in some sense in order to think of it as persisting through the coming to be and passing away. There's some inanimate body which is somehow taken up or incorporated into a living organism and given a function, a function is imposed on it in some way. And then when the living organism dies, this inanimate body is freed again. When it's freed, it can move about as it did before this biological function was imposed on it. Now, to think of a living organism in this way is to think of it very much like a house, right? Each of these tissues is its own natural unity. It has an internal principle of movement and rest. It tends towards its own natural location and does what it wants to do independently of the soul that happens to be animating that body. So on this view, one thinks of a living organism as somehow a multiplicity 
a multiplicity of natural unities that are somehow tied together by a soul, a soul that's constraining these natural unities from acting like they would on their own, like they would in a completely inanimate context. But I think this isn't Aristotle's view. According to Aristotle, whenever you're looking at anything in nature and really want to understand what the thing is, you need to look at the principle from which it comes to be and the principle that maintains the thing as the sort of being it is, that allows it to persist as the sort of being it is. And I'm suggesting that in living organisms, there's just a single principle. So one shouldn't see a living organism as somehow a collection of autonomous unities all trying to do their own thing, but being constrained by a soul. One has to see all of the movements and changes that occur within a human being as somehow being united and directed towards a single end. Christopher Frey, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, it's been a pleasure. If you have any questions about this episode, you can post them to our blog at lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, dot uchicago dot edu slash blogs slash elucidations on the blog you can get background information on the topics we covered and join in the discussion 